Welcome to the Brand Intelligence Podcast from Intelligence Bank, the show where we pull back the curtain on some of the world's smartest brands and content branding initiatives and the people behind all of the great work doing this. I'm your co-host, Tessa Court, and here with me today is William Tyree. And today we're taking a deep dive into the world of digital asset management, metadata, and AI, and why they're important. Joining us today is John Hardisky, who is a world-leading author and metadata and content strategy expert and currently at SaltFlat. So welcome, John, and hi, William. Thank you so much. Hey, good to be with you. Before I turn it over to William to ask all the fun and hard questions, John, I want to hear about your theme song first and why you love it. So I have a firm belief that everyone has a theme song that either sums up their life or makes them super happy. Mine is usually Proud Mary, just because it's the very best one to do in karaoke. It was the first dance song at my wedding. And importantly, it's about appreciating the finer things in life and the smaller things in life. But also because I'm a 90s tragic, I'm also listening to Hootie and the Blowfish and Plush by Stone Temple Pilots. So what's yours? That's really embarrassing. I just said that, but I'd love to hear what your theme song is too. Love STP. I saw them back in the day. Wow, 90s tragic. Well, I mean, Tessa, I turned 50 this year, so I'm all about the 90s tragic. And that goes to many things. But it's funny, when I wrote my book, I had a section in there where I did a metadata example of my name, my date, my favorite color, my favorite stuff. And my favorite song at the time is actually from an Australian band by the name of Tame Impala. And the song is called New Person, Same Old Mistakes. Feel like a brand new I love this song because A, I love the band, but B, it's all about hope and the ability to change. And I'm a sucker for that type of stuff. And that goes to many songs in the 80s and 90s, The Verve's Bittersweet Symphony, Madonna's Ray of Light, The Smith's There Is a Light That Never Goes Out, songs about hope and change. And you know, if I'm gonna do karaoke with you, Tessa, Alanis Morissette's You Oughta Know, come on. Come on. That's a great one. You can belt it out. It's a perfect one. I think we could do that. So William, what's your theme song? I would say mine changes about every five minutes, but right now, you know, there's just so much going on in the world. I'm going to choose like something a little bit that some people might say like a little lighter, fair, more shallow, but I absolutely love Dua Lipa's Levitating. I got you. I know it's been out for a couple of years, but that song has amazing staying power. You put that on in any room today and it's become like an all time banger. I just love that it instantly injects likeness and energy into any room. So I'll stick with that. Love it. If we're thinking of starting a damn karaoke series, I think we've got the beginnings right here. I think we can do it. That's right. I think we at least have a playlist. <laughs> we at least have a playlist. <laughs> <laughs> So hand it over to you, William, with John and hear all about DAM and metadata and why that matters for brands. So John, let's start with this. How did you become a DAM and metadata expert? How did I become? Uh, it goes way back in the day. So in fact, I am a librarian and an archivist. So went to grad school, got two master's degrees, library and information science and archival studies. And as a younger individual, I always loved history and writing and all that cool stuff. And I went to grad school for those things. And the funny thing was happening at the time, the internet was a thing. And I found myself gravity, gravitating towards digital stuff as opposed to books and papers and old documents. And I really thought this was interesting. The, you know, the internet's going to stay. What do we do with it? How do we manage digital objects? And funny enough, 
in Vancouver, where I did my graduate work, Electronic Arts, the world's largest video game company, was is there. And I cold called them and said, hey, I'm doing graduate level work in something called digital asset management. Could I come there for a few months for free? And they're like, Yes, we don't even know what that means, but come on in. And sure enough, after a few months, uh, and I, when I graduated, they said, can you stay and we'll actually pay you to do this stuff because we really need this damn stuff. And that's how it all happened. So digital asset management and obviously with librarianship and information studies, it's all about categorization and identification and description. And guess what? That's metadata. So that's how I got my start. And um, happy am I to have been doing this for over 20 years and keep on doing it. I absolutely love that story. And I love that you're still, you know, it sounds almost like you're playing with toys that you really, really like. It sounds amazing. By the way, what was your favorite toy when you wanted to grow up? Was it something related to the library? <laughs> well, hopefully sharing is caring. Uh, apparently, my parents said I was a very organized child. So I don't know if it was the Fisher-Price stacking blocks that I just consistently always put together that way. But definitely mm -hmm. Lego. I mean, come on. Uh, little kid, Lego, Lego, Lego. Building things, deconstructing, building it again. Definitely word games, crayons. But yeah, Lego and building blocks. Good question. Good question. I bet you did not follow the instructions. I bet you were just totally creative and just did it. I mean, the instructions were there, but once I saw it, I went, that's cool. And then move that to the side and then keep on going. That's why Lego was such an impactful part of, you know, childhood. And the building blocks, you can build whatever you want. And it makes perfect sense that you would be into metadata too, because metadata right. allows you to take this one thing, people look at it in one way and resort it, recategorize it, make it into so many other things. I think that's really, really fascinating. I, I love the through line. Why is metadata important for content marketers and creators? Well, I mean, I've always said if data is the language upon which our modern society is going to be built, whether that's for business applications or even personal applications, then metadata has to be that grammar, you know? It's going to be about the construction of all that meeting the ability to understand what it is. It's about identification. It's about discovery. And anyone in content creation and content marketing, it's all about getting that stuff found. You want your stuff to be found. And you want them, it's like the ring in Lord of the Rings. You know, you want the ring to be found. This is that thing. So I think it matters because it tells you where your content comes from. It tells you where your content is going to. And business needs are always there. And user needs are changing. The consumers are changing. Metadata is that one piece that sort of ties it all together. Because again, e-commerce, B2B, you want the content to be found. So that's why it's important for those individuals because... They want it to be used, reused, applicated, something, but that's why it's a good thing. That's 100% right. In terms of metadata, getting content found for the external world, right? The things that I, you know, kind of going old school a little bit, I think about things like keywords and tags on blogs, things like that, right? What other ways are you using metadata to um, get content found either like internally or externally? Yeah, a lot of the stuff that we see with our clients revolves around e-commerce and a lot about a distribution and compliance. And metadata is the one way to ensure that things happen. Again, uh, as was told to me many years ago, people have a lot of stuff and they want to find that stuff and then use that stuff in certain ways. And metadata can be that part for it. And a lot of that is based upon distribution networks. And as we know, in this complex world of marketing systems, there are many things that are working together. And metadata helps those assets go around those systems so they can be found and used in different ways. 
But the compliance angle to it, I'm really excited to see that really come into itself over the last 10, 15 years. Regulatory bodies and concerns of government regulations and or other, am I allowed to use this asset in what region and for what reasons? Can I use it in print or digital or other? What did tell me more of those things? And the metadata that surrounds those digital objects allows one to understand what they can, and more importantly sometimes, what they can't do with it. So I love the fact that metadata is playing in that sort of regulation compliance world. That's really amazing. This is a way that I don't think your average marketer, your average content person is thinking about using metadata. Can we talk about like a couple of examples where metadata could be used incorrectly or overused and it could have negative regulatory compliance ramifications? Well, I love the way you flip that around, William. Sometimes it's best to know what not to do before we do know what right. to do. <laughs> and oh, I mean, in my career, I've seen it all. I've seen logo misusage. Absolutely many times where people go to the internet, right click, that looks like our logo, let's use that. All of a sudden there's a lawsuit. Nope, that's not our logo, that was three logo versions before. Compliance errors where things were not entered correctly into the digital asset management system and things were sent out incorrectly. These are simple little mistakes, but they lead to brand problems and digital asset management, it's one of its foundational pillars has always been about good brand management. So yeah, the negative impact on reputation can go very uh, south, as we say, very quickly. So yeah, we need down. I think Tessa would agree. We need down. <laughs> we need order to the chaos. That's absolutely for sure. And if you don't have the metadata that supports that, things go wrong. I also think about it in terms of, you know, as more and more companies are going headless with their content, I think you alluded to that before in terms of the connection of MarTech systems and the content that needs to flow from the dam into e-commerce platforms, personalization, email marketing, et cetera. It's that metadata that kind of ensures that what's being sent out is approved and it's the right version. And you also cool. don't have talent usage right issues, right? Because that's a huge, huge issue from a compliance perspective as well. Yeah, I've seen many unfortunate situations where the wrong asset did go out. And it was a version control issue where, uh, you know, final underscore final one, final two, and organizations couldn't find the one that actually went to air. And I've certainly others seen situations where the talent rights were not applied correctly to the assets. And that just spells lawsuits. And I think we can all agree nobody wants a lawsuit. So let's have better brand management, consistent use of our metadata so we can avoid those situations, right? In some ways, it's kind of risk management. But yeah, we need it. Absolutely. That's a great use case. And I think just kind of going down, breaking down for folks in other industries too, when we get it right, I think people really underestimate and certainly underappreciate the role metadata has in helping not only consumers find what they want quickly, but also helping marketers, you know, get higher sales, basically. So if you're looking for a gray pair of Carhartts and a certain size and a certain style and you get the metadata right, it'll lead you right there. And that's the way by getting the metadata right, you actually have a competitive edge. Yeah, it's all about findability. At the end of the game, it's all about findability. As I said before, you want your assets to be found. And that's what metadata can allow you to do because it does improve organization of your content and accessibility to that content so you can find it. But also with the digital asset management system and metadata, it improves the opportunities for collaboration and teamwork because people are working together to either create 
edit, approve, and then distribute this content, which allows us to be more consistent with our branding and our content. Obviously, it allows us for better ROI, that's return on investment. There'll be time and cost savings because you have a central place to find the stuff that you're looking for and use it in those types of situations. And then with that, in digital asset management, you definitely want the multi-channel distribution opportunities. And when you do get it right, you allow that to be a seamless orchestration of movement. And without that metadata, again, you get it wrong. We're all about the rights. Yes, you really do. <laughs> How has the use of AI changed the way that marketing teams leverage metadata, use it, work more efficiently, all that? I'd just love to hear some of your thoughts and use cases on that. Yeah, I think the word of the year is uh, in 2023 has been chat GPT. And we've seen AI for years. It's been around in lots of different ways, and not just HAL in 2001 A Space Odyssey, but AI has been sort of lurking in the background. And I've always said, uh, if you want the robots to work, then you gotta feed them good metadata, because that's how they are gonna learn and do better and grow and with that machine learning behind them. And certainly, metadata plays a role in that AI. We've seen it do well in organizations where they take a few metadata fields, for instance, color. And the AI is able to look at the data, look at the visualization and say, this is more blue, this is more green, this is more red. And it's because of those recognition of the metadata behind the scenes that you're able to get this work. But the argument I always want to present to our clients and anyone listening today, it's, it has to be authenticative, it's got to be authoritative, it's got to be correct data to help the robots work. As we've heard for years, the whole adage of garbage in, garbage out, it's really kind of true. So the better we're able to feed the robots and AI really good metadata, the better they'll be to learn and process and become better as they go over time. So yeah, right at the foundational level, metadata helps the AI go. It really does. I also think I absolutely love it. So long as the, uh, the AI is properly trained, I love auto attribution. Personally, oh, I, I just it. love it so much, especially if you have a consistent set that you can use over and over again, and it's smart enough to really recognize, you know, the people and objects in your database. It, I think it really helps organizations stay uh, fully aligned and, you know, get consistent things out. But, you know, with AI, it's always, I think, a use, don't trust, always verify at this mm. point, because it will save you hours and hours and hours. It will save you days but you have to make sure that you take just that little time to make sure that it's contextually relevant yeah. and edit before you go out. What's your take on that? And, and have you seen instances where people put too much trust in it and didn't contextualize? Absolutely. And I think you had the keyword right there of the day, and that is trust. And what do we need more in our society, in our business, in our, our applications? It is trust. Well, how do you get trust? Uh, well, that's an emotional, it's an intellectual process. And sometimes the robots, sometimes we don't see it. You know, things like ChatGPT, it doesn't reveal the source of its information. So we as the users, the consumers, kind of are left with uncertainty and potentially distrust. And ChatGPT lacks those human qualities that instill trust. One of the things I was taught in grad school is all about trust and authenticity. And that is what we do in terms of, you know, 100 years ago, the monks in the archives writing letters, they would fold letters in certain ways, they would stamp it with certain stamps, you knew it was authentic, and you knew this was a document. Those days are gone. So we rely upon the robots and the machines to give it, but we don't see that trust sometimes with artificial intelligence. But you know what can help with that? 
good old fashioned human beans. I do believe in the power That's of right. human beans. They're still available uh, in all shapes and sizes <laughs> all over the place. And human beans can really help the process. And when I see a lot of clients and people getting excited about artificial intelligence and using it, I want to share in that excitement with them. But I always take the time to pause and say, don't forget the humans as part of the process, the quality assurance, the testing, the review of the, all those cycles. Humans, you know, we're not, we make mistakes as well, just as the AI does, but together, good combination, I think. I'm thinking a t-shirt is coming out that says, you know, don't forget the humans. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> You heard it here. Oh, I do like that. Tessa, we got an idea. I love it. We got an idea. Let's take it to the world. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, speaking of humans, the way that marketing teams are working these days is is interesting. And I mean, this isn't across every industry, but across a lot of industries, there's been a lot of impact on marketing teams over the last a year, especially maybe even going back 18 months or so. So a lot of content and and creative people have been hit hardest, I think, by some of the things. And what's interesting, though, is people are, uh, marketing teams are still spending 40% of their budgets on content. And they're actually using technology then to enable, you know, the, the existing marketing team is to do a lot more with, in some cases, a lot less. For people who don't use a dam and the metadata structures that come with it, you know, they've got shared drive and, and you know all this from the agency world. What are the benefits of a good dam versus, you know, the other stuff that we've all done in the past? Well, I love that uh, introduction because it's all about and a word that we hear very often in digital asset management, a common phrase. It is the central source of truth. And I do think there's a lot behind that. And I think those who are using Dropboxes and boxes and shared drives, you run the risk of mismanagement of your assets. So digital asset management and metadata some way reduces that risk because we're able to apply sort of conscious sort of intellectual properties around the content. And it's a scale issue as well. The more you have, the more risk you're mismanaging that content. And guess what? We are producing more content than we ever have. We are producing more videos, especially than we ever have. And having digital asset management being the core of that allows us to give a structure. And again, that central storage place. And I've had many situations. My favorite story, we call it um, Sharon and the J drive. Client won't say their name, large situation, and they put all their stuff on the J drive. So I said, that sounds great. Can you tell me more about the driver? And they said, well, go talk to Sharon. And then someone in the room said, oh, Sharon retired like two years ago. And he's like, oh, well, and then who's managing the J drive? And everyone in the room sort of looked at each other going, well, aren't you? And I know, and it was like, Funny, haha, but also whoopsie daisies. I mean, there was a few other words in there that I'll not repeat, but it was allowing us the time to say, do we manage our stuff correctly? And guess what? Uh, 2023, many organizations, small, big, and large, are still mismanaging their stuff. It's put all over the place. Thumb drives, people taking their thumb drives home and their kids going, what's this, mom and dad? And like, yikes, put that down. <laughs> Digital asset <laughs> management is that really great opportunity to put things into one place, organize it. I mean, if anything in this world, don't we want to just have more organization to find what we're looking for? Again, I've sort of repeated myself a little bit there, William, but we're wanting to find things and certainly central source of truth. That's a good thing in 2023. I don't know about you. I want to share a very funny story about that. So I was talking to a very senior person at Dropbox. This is probably like 10 years ago. And we were talking about a partnership because we had clients that were like integrating Intelligence Bank Dam and with Dropbox and they wanted 
files to go back and forward. So I said to him, I said, so tell me, what's your value proposition? How do you sell? And he said, see this thumb drive? All your stuff goes on here. And I said, oh, that's awesome. I said, because when we talk to clients, it's like when you get overwhelmed by Dropbox, because there's so much stuff in there that's uncategorized, there's no proper metadata management, you come to a dam. And that's the difference, right? Like, in the sense that, I mean, Dropbox is an amazing tool for Absolutely. bulk file sharing and and storage, especially they give you lots of free data. But at the end of the day, if you don't categorize the data properly and have ways to structure it, you end up like Sharon, right? You end up with just this, this monster where nobody can find things. And that really is the difference also between share drives, like kind of these consumer file share capabilities, plus something that's super structured. But Everything's strength is its weakness as well. So, yeah. you know, the ease of a Dropbox or a box or one of those, it's easy because you don't have to put anything in there. You just dump it in and it's there and it's that's what's easy about it. But when you take the time to structure data, as you said before, crap in, crap out, good things in, good things out is, <laughs> is kind of what we see. I've always said that it's, and we all have these situations, organizations that have a lot of content floating around everywhere. You have a lot of assets with those, right? But they don't really become smart assets until you apply the metadata to it. And that's when they become identifiable, usable, discoverable, all those good things. And certainly, and I'm sure Tessa in your career and William in yours as well, we've seen those organizations who've got a lot of stuff and want to start organizing it. We met a client this week who said, I've got 10,000 assets on Flickr. How do I put them in the down? And I said, that sounds fun. Do you have any metadata? Well, no. Okay, so we have an issue here, right? Because you got good stuff and people have great content. You've seen the videos, the images, the graphics, but if there's no metadata behind it, it's just not as good as it really can be. So I think it's an opportunity for everyone to sort of organize themselves, you know, get together. Uh, let's put some stuff behind the assets so you can really start using them in the ways you intended them to be. But John, it's also the cost, right? So however many assets there were anywhere, whether on Sharon's J Drive, I'm going to be using Sharon's J Drive as well. But like, um, it doesn't matter where it is, you know, as William alluded to, you know, 40% of marketing budgets are being spent on content. So it's literally like the rowing away money if you don't have it sorted. And I also think that's where AI kind of can come in because the tagging side of life is painful, right? And so, and it's hard and you need people who are good at it and you need to be diligent at it. And so William was going to discuss a little bit about the power of AI and how that's really helping marketing teams and creatives and even legal teams about managing digital assets. Yeah. I, I have to say that I would much rather be that person uh, trying to get all my assets out of Flickr and into a dam in 2023 than in, say, 2017. And it's because, you know, 2017, for the most part, you know, that is probably going to be a very manual exercise or even to craft the metadata. I mean, you could talk about a individual being sidelined for weeks, right? Um, so we're now in situations where we're going from just on that exercise, weeks to, you know, minutes or hours at the longest. And again, you always want to make sure that, you know, there might be additional optimization that you want to use, all those kind of things, but it's amazing how much it can help. And I think the other thing that I absolutely love it for is I used to use probably five or six different tools for what one platform can do right now for everything from transcripts. This podcast, for example, like, you know, closed captions will be automatically done by AI, right? The tagging will be automatically done by AI subtitles, things like that. In your mind, 
tell me about what's really working and what you feel like needs improvement when it comes to AI and marketing and what you see kind of happening in the in the near term. I love the stats you provided in terms of the spend and all that. I'm always fearful of the the 80% of the world's uh, content is still unstructured. Yikes. That's a lot of stuff floating around with a lot, a lot of stuff behind it. So let's get things. So I think things are working well. This is an opportunity for us to improve and augment and make things just a little bit better. I think there's opportunities for us to sort of work side by side with the technology to allow for those improvements going forward. I think that uh, metadata plays that sort of key role in helping things. Again, the AI is there. Let's take a field-by-field approach of it. Let's take a look where a metadata can sort of improve opportunities. I love the example you said that, you know, this podcast, there'll be automatic sort of um, content and closed captioning being added to these things. And I think there's opportunities for ourselves to take a step back, look at our content creation process and say, where can it be automated? Where can we start inserting robots? Even at content creation level, and I love doing this with clients, is okay, at that level, when you're making the graphic, the video, you're taking the photos on site, et cetera, et cetera. What's the date? What is this? Where are you? What campaign is this for? Right from the beginning of the process, you can start getting things put in and that can be automated. And if you can start telling your systems where this has come from, where it's going, that can be built right into your process. And I think that's just an easy sort of way to start thinking about where we can start the automation and where we can start looking at opportunities for the AI to come in and start helping with those situations. So always mindful to take the pause Take a look at your workflow and start seeing where could AI come into play here? Where could I, as earlier said, optimize what is going on? And I think for many of us right now, this is much of an optimization process as it is production right from the beginning. That makes a total sense. Tessa, you spend a lot of your time, you know, like interacting with engineers on your team, product leaders. You know, where do you see the state of the union on AI and what's next? Yeah, I think the good news in the DAM community is that we've all been using AI for a long time. So like we've had AI on our product since 2014, and it's only getting better, which is the good news. I think there's definitely a balance between when I think a lot of AI right now is about an inch deep and it looks great and it's sexy on the surface, but then you kind of keep pushing it a little bit more and it falls down. So I guess from an intelligence bank perspective, like we're really conscious of ensuring that whatever we introduce is enterprise ready. You know, we've had some situations early days, so the AI is much better now, but for automatic keyword tagging, where there was like a CEO of a company and the AI said, good looking, sexy man as the tag, which was completely inappropriate on so many levels, but it's what the AI did return. And there's a whole other conversation about who's programming the AI as well. And what is the metadata the AI is working on? And I know, John, that goes into this whole other territory on DEI and Um, about, you know, I think there's that in the metadata, but then I think from an AI programming perspective, the metadata that's being used for that, how biased is it or how relevant is it as well? So there's a whole thing there, but I think like net net, there's a lot of it that's really good now. A lot of it can save marketers a ton of time. 
but it's about introducing things when they're enterprise ready as well, because you don't want good looking, hot, sexy man as a metadata tag that automatically happens without people checking it. So there, there's, there's still need. We need the humans, John. We still, we still need the humans to, to kind of help us there. See, it goes right back to that T-shirt, Tessa. We're going to get this goes, T-shirt. We do need the humans the because they're important part of this process. And certainly, and if metadata is all about meaning, and we realize that our business needs change, our users and consumers are changing, heck, the words in our language are changing over time, so too must the metadata adapt and change with those norms to be respectful. And you mentioned DEI, and I think, you know, for those that are listening, diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, that's something we have seen great interest over the last few years from the heritage sector, for allowing Indigenous peoples to come in and help the metadata tagging of those assets from everyone to CPG, media entertainment, retail, and others saying, how do I tag people in a photo? What is the right way to do it? And I think as many issues in our world affairs, Black Lives Matters being one of them, the DEI initiatives really came into play. And I think at you know in our world of digital asset management, a lot of people are saying, what is the metadata? Perhaps there are words that we may not need to use anymore in 2023 for many good reasons. So let's just make sure we are using the more respectful, inclusive terms as we go forward. And I think that's something that definitely I've seen a lot more people talking about this and a lot more people asking a little bit help on, on that tagging level and then asking the robots and the AI themselves should I be using the words good looking, sexy uh, fellow, whoever that was, or what are some better words I might use? Maybe synonyms, you know, that could be used to help us still find what we're looking for. <laughs> like hot dude. No, I'm just dude. kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but look at our global world that we live in, though. We still, you know, I say potato chips. You might say crisps. Same thing, different words. How do we find what we're looking for? I say sweater. Someone in the UK will say jumper. Same thing, but I sure hope we can find it. And those those little opportunities for the words to really make a difference. And again, the robots will not know unless we start telling them, hey, that is a sweater. It's also known as a jumper. The back of a car is known as a trunk. Some places it's known as a boot. Keep on going. There's all these examples and more and more of our clients and organizations that, Tessa, you are familiar with and William, you have worked with. It's these global markets where we have to be thinking a little bit more carefully about the metadata. Certain things on even a regional basis. Uh, some products may be seen as beauty and then another region might be seen as healthcare. Well, I sure hope the metadata is reflecting these things along. And sometimes that's where the AI may not get it. But good old-fashioned human beings beside that can help the robots and the AI figure that out. Gosh, those are fantastic examples. Kind of sticking with face recognition for a moment. Disclosure, I used to be CMO of a face recognition company. And I basically woke up in the morning thinking about privacy and CNMA alerts for mentions of my company in the New York Times, things like that. Fortunately, I think that with each passing year, face recognition is becoming more and more useful. And it seems like people are really understanding the positive applications of it, you know, when it's done right. Tessa, you have a lot of experience with clients using face recognition. You know, care to maybe share like a couple of the use cases of, you know, how that form of AI is, it can be helpful, especially for either DAI or regulatory compliance or things like that. Yeah. And I think John said it really well. You don't want to get fined, fired or sued based on content that goes out the door. Right. So I think facial recognition, despite there are a zillion privacy issues around it, but for the industries and territories where it's kind of kosher to use it, you know, we see like universities, for instance, they're managing images and assets and video 
with literally hundreds of thousands of people. So if somebody wants to opt out from a privacy perspective, facial recognition and doing a reverse search on an image like that and training the AI to find that person within, let's say, a dam with hundreds of thousands of files is a really quick way to ensure and help people with their privacy, ironically. We see a lot of clients, our clients like in hospitals, for instance, where you don't want dead people on billboards like that is just inappropriate and insensitive, especially children's hospitals. So it's a very important kind of capability to have to find those talent usage rights. And I think the other one, you know, we had a client where they had this like beautiful model and she she was this Asian woman who was kind of in this campaign they had as part of their Asian markets. And then I think in Australia, she was just in the dam and they used her face on a coaster. It turns out she's like the Angelina Jolie of China and totally in breach of all their talent usage rights. So with facial recognition and combined with talent contracts and doing reverse lookups and things like that, there's some really powerful ways to kind of manage talent compliance overall, I think, is the is the main thing. And even down to executives, you know, if a CEO or a CMO leaves a company, they're in all these images and how do you find them in a crowd of people and how do you easily take them out without spending hours and hours? So it's really that kind of admin. But John, I'd love to hear a little bit about how you're seeing facial recognition work in your practice and, you know, with your customers as well. And how's that working for you? Well, it certainly is a technology that's come up in the last several years. People, and especially in the media industry, even the news agencies, uh, red carpet events, any sports event, any live event. If there's photographers, they're taking pictures. Who is that? Is that Brad Pitt or George Clooney? I may not know, but I hope the AI can tell me really quickly. So there's lots of great reasons why we can be use these things. And I think, generally speaking, at a red carpet event or at a sports, a sports event, there is consent behind these things. What may not be perceived as a good thing is when you are not providing consent. Is there a camera on the street that has now taken my image and I didn't say you could please? Yes, thank you. Uh, I don't know. All of a sudden, my face might be shown up in your coaster example. Yeah, so maybe the consent thing is something we need to start talking about. And we don't know how these things are potentially being misused behind the scenes. Are they stored correctly? Are there opportunities for the good old unfortunate phrase of identity theft? Yikes. Mm -hmm. Tell us more about how you're managing these things. And we just don't know. And there's a lot of, you know, as we talked a little earlier on, William, it's the trust. Am I, do I know what I'm getting into when I walk down the street anymore? I don't know. It's good questions I ask our clients. It's good questions in governance. And I'm, I'm a huge believer in good governance around our assets. I just think in these types of issues of facial recognition and privacy, ask ourselves the questions, what are you trying to do with this content? What is it trying to be used for? And always step back and just ensure we've got some checks and balances along the way, just to maybe ask a few more questions to ensure that some of these sort of unfortunate situations don't happen in the future. Again, power of human beings, right? Yeah, completely. I think it's all about checks and balances with AI in general, right? Absolutely. And making sure that you've got internal guidelines to you know govern how it's really used. I absolutely love that. Okay, kind of zooming out from AI to back to kind of general metadata. So say like, you know, a, a brand manager or CMO is listening right now and, you know, their data is a mess. Where do you start? You know, where do you start in 2023? Well, my phone number is one nine one seven. No, I mean, and Tessa hears these stories all the time. I mean, it, it's like that. Okay, so I've got multiple Dropboxes. I do have the J Drive. Sharon has retired. What do I do? My first starting place is always right from the beginning. It's sort of content assessment, content audit, something very simple as that. What do you have? Where is it? How much do you have? Do you own it? 
Is it organized? Do you have metadata behind it? And what are you trying to do with it? Starting right there gets things a lot moving faster than just going help. And I think that's the best way to start. Just do a content assessment and see what you got, see what you're trying to do with it. I've seen situations where people have Dreamweaver files and saying, should I keep this? And I'm like, no. Uh, that that's something that you could say goodbye to. And I think my, but no, no, full serious, Tessa. I was like, um, no, I mean, bless you. That's amazing. But, you know, these are the types of questions. And something that I learned in my grad school work way back in the day was being able to say, this is something we can keep. This is something we can get rid of. And we've seen those instances where people do use digital asset management systems to keep things for long-term use, whether it's archival footage or something you just don't want to get rid of. But I do think asking the questions of, why do I have this? You know, it, you know, does it spark joy? Remember that from a few years ago? You know, why am I keeping things? Remember that? I was literally going to call you the Marie Kondo of metadata. <laughs> oh, please do. I would appreciate it. That's awesome. Because with our clients, you have to go to them and Tessa, you've seen these organizations was like, why are you keeping this stuff? Like, do we need this all? But it begs the question again of metadata and versioning. Do you want version one, two, three, up to 12? Do you need the one that went to here? I don't know. But a content assessment is a great place to start. I love it. And yeah, new role. Dreamweaver can still be a song, but it can't be software. <laughs> yes. I love that. Okay. Now, you've been very modest the whole time. If I was your manager, I would have advised you to at least mention your books three times before now because it's <laughs> completely irrelevant to our discussion. So tell us about your book. Why did you write it? What it's about and who should get it? Yeah, throughout my career, in all the projects we've ever had in digital asset management, marketing technology, all that stuff, metadata is part of each one of them. And there's a lot of sort of misunderstanding of what it is. Some people think it's the matrix and yikes, why did I take the red pill? I should take the blue pill and get the heck out of here because it scares the heck out of me. Uh, metadata sort of instills a little bit of a, you know, misuse sometimes too, because we don't know what we're supposed to be doing with it. And, you know, with the rise of the Edward Snowdens and other people who have brought metadata out into public discourse, it allowed the opportunity for people really to start talking about it. And I'm a big believer in making things manageable, learnable, and simplified. And sometimes in big concepts like metadata, they get scared. But it could be as easy as walking into a boardroom with a whole bunch of executives and saying, here's a chocolate bar, here's some M&Ms, open it up, talk about it. Tell me about the bag. Tell me about the UPS, the code on the back. What language is it in? What are the ingredients? What does this mean? And I think we can start taking apart little things like that to make it meaningful. And I wrote this book with the intent of making it usable by consumers. I didn't want something eriditious, too academic. I wanted something that was meaningful so people could walk away and go, okay, I appreciate it. I understand it. I'm inspired by it. I did get educated and now I have some actionable next steps to go forward. And people who have read the book have all said similar things to me saying, this was uh, palatable. I could understand in a level that I could then go do it. And people have then taken it to their boss and boss's bosses saying, we need this metadata. We get it now. So let's start doing it. So that's why I started making this book two years ago. Metadata Matters is the title. I think I was maybe your second sale, probably after your family, and literally <laughs> was the first one on Amazon to buy it. And it's kind of must read content for our team when they join Intelligence Bank, because some people come from agency oh, backgrounds you. and know about metadata, some people don't. And it's just a nice kind of intro. So I really appreciate what you've written. And we use it kind of on a regular basis for induction. So thank you for thank that. Thank you. Thank you. And make it fun. Uh, if anything I've learned from my career, 
Make it fun, you know, tell fun stories, the Sharon and the J-Drive story, whatever it takes. I put Moira Rose from Schitt's Creek in the book to talk about her elaborate use of language. It's all language and metadata, so have fun with it. And I can tell you from my career, clients that get it, understand it, and have a little fun with it, they do a lot better than those who don't. So always take the time to step back, question the robots, play with them, but just have a little fun and you're going to do okay. That is amazing advice. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been an incredible Thank conversation. You. Thank you. Thanks so much, John. It was great to see you at Damn New York earlier this year. And um, I think it's our annual reunion. um, And I'll look forward to seeing you again then. But we just really appreciate the insight that you've given us and our listeners about not just metadata, but the implications of getting it right, how it tends to lean into marketing compliance, and then how do we train the robot? So I will be sending you a t-shirt. We still need the humans. So look out for it. And uh, (laughs) we can wear that with pride. Oh, more than happy to be here. Enjoy your presence and talking with you, Tessa. William, thank you so much. Great questions. And I do think for those who are listening, yeah, you can do it too. Metadata is not that sort of uh, elusive place. It's something you can really start managing at a day-to-day level. And it does matter. And very glad to be here today speaking with you both. Thank you so much. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Brand Intelligence. If you have any questions or feedback, please send us an email at podcast at intelligencebank.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, share it with others who might be interested in the world of branding and marketing. And if you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss an episode. You can subscribe where the podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you download your podcasts. Once again, thank you for listening and see you next time on Brand Intelligence.